We're going to be in John chapter 10, or John chapter 11, sorry, John 11. We're going to do verses 1 through 54. I know some of you are thinking he takes 50 minutes with five verses, but uh, this is just the, the text, so I don't have anything till ultimate Frisbee tonight. That's not true. I have some people coming over, but they're here too, so they'll have to wait on us. All right, uh, John 11. Um, as a church, we've been walking through John all of this year, and the book of John is written so that you may believe, present tense, that you may believe, that you would continue to believe, that you would keep believing, that your faith would be strengthened. Um, alone among the Gospels, the four Gospels in the Bible, uh, the Gospel of John uh, seems to have a very, a real sensitivity and a real emphasis for those who are in the pit and those who are suffering and those who walk through the valley of the shadow of death. The Gospel of John seems to be written um, with a sensitivity if, for those whose faith is struggling and those who feel like giving up. The Gospel of John is, so if you're here this morning, that describes you. The Gospel of John uh, is for you. And, and in particular, the f- whole first half of the Gospel of John is sometimes called the Book of Signs. And uh, that that first half of the Gospel of John climaxes with the passage that we're going to talk about today. And so the passage we're going to talk about today, the raising of Lazarus from the dead, is, is the conclusion to the first half of the Gospel of John. And from it actually begins a chain of events that will ultimately lead to the death and the resurrection of Christ. And so um, it's, it's an important passage, and it's a deep passage, and um, no matter how long I take on it today, I will only be scratching the surface. And so I encourage you um, to go back and study this passage for yourself after this this morning. So what I'm going to do is I'm, I'm going to read verses 1 through 16, and then um, I'll pray, and then we'll pause, and we'll work our way through the, uh, through the whole chapter this morning. Uh, but just to start, we're going to start with verses 1 through 16. It says this, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the light, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. Father in heaven, one more time, we ask that your word would be true, 
in our hearts is true, but we pray that we would resonate with the truth that is in it. We pray that as a result of our time together this morning, that you cause us to know and to see and to believe your Son all the more. It's in the name of your Son that we pray. Amen. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust, earth to earth. There's a chance, a good chance, that I will stand over your grave or somebody like me maybe within the coming days, coming months, coming years, and put my arm around those who love you. And I will say these words as we place you into the ground. Your family will shed tears, Lord willing, for most of us. And they will share memories about all their favorite memories of you, and then they will return home. Chances are that all of us will have this or something else like this said as we go to meet our maker. The only way that that doesn't happen is if the Lord returns before then. Death is a normal part of life. It's a regular part of life. It's part of the rhythms of life. And yet, we all know that it seems off. There's something that's just not quite right about it, that as much as that rhythm of dust to dust, ashes to ashes, earth to earth, as much as we know those words, there's just it doesn't seem quite right. It seems like we're, we're, we're in a world that seems like what is normal ought not to be. That, that what, is, what is regular ought to be unknown. Yet death waits for no man. There's a silly little show. Uh, called The Good Place. Some of you have maybe seen it. And almost everything in that show is garbage. But there's one point in that show where um, there, there's this person explaining to, uh, to an immortal being, an angel, about, um, uh, about what it's like to be human. And she says, that, she says that all humans know that, that death is just around the corner and we're a little bit sad. You know, whoever you are this morning, no matter where you are vis-a-vis the Lord, that death is around the corner. And this passage, the whole gospel of John, but especially this passage, speaks to that reality of human existence. That death waits for no man. That sooner or later we will all be put into the ground. And it's into these moments, into the the brokenness of this world into the the lowest valleys into the darkest days that our lord and savior enters he does not run away from these moments but rather chooses to show his glory precisely in the brokenness of this world so the way i want to talk about this this morning is i want to talk about four conversations i want to talk about three ironies i want to talk about two realities I want to talk about one Savior, and then, I don't know, like 27 applications. You guys think I'm joking. Four, four conversations. A conversation with the disciples, a conversation with Martha, a conversation with Mary, and a conversation with Lazarus. Here's what the conversation with the disciples looks like. It happens in these first 16 verses. We see that Jesus is with his disciples beyond the River Jordan, um, baptizing and teaching, um, ministering. 
And he received these messengers from this family that they all know well. It's implied the disciples know them well, not only that Jesus knows them well. And um, the first thing that we, we, especially if we have a church background, we're probably familiar with this story enough that we don't, the details of it don't kind of strike us as strange as they should. But there's three adult siblings who are all living together who are unmarried. Have you ever thought about that? That's very weird in the first century. Uh, Chances are, um, in in a situation like this, that all three of them, or at least two of them, or at least one of them should have been married, and yet there's no other extended family to speak of. There's also no parents no, no, there's no parents around, and um, neither in this story nor in the next story. And Lazarus is, we're told that he is kind of the, the head of the family at this point. It's just a strange situation. Uh, perhaps they were all relatively young, and their parents had died when they were quite young, and um, perhaps that they, uh, perhaps that uh, they were actually all, you know, teenagers. Um, these are there's nothing there's nothing in the text that would indicate these are um, old people. We're also told um, a couple details that are very interesting. Uh, th- apparently, it's a well-known family because people come from Jerusalem to Bethany to pay their respects to the family. Um, so people come from Jerusalem. They come from you know, the biggest city around to this little village in the middle of nowhere to pay their respects. The family must have been well-known. And, and yet Martha, uh, and both in this story and in other stories, is serving. She's serving at tables uh, which would probably not be true if they were a family that was remotely well-off. They probably would have had household servants. And so probably this was a family that was well-known. There are other details that would indicate this. A family of some repute, uh, and yet there was not a lot of financial wealth. And so we don't know the whole story. We can only speculate. But this is a, there, there's enough clues in this passage, in this family, in this story, and in the related one, in the Gospel of Luke, and we'll see next in the next chapter in John 12 to think there's something off that there's this is not the first tragedy that has struck this family. This is not the first time this family has had to say goodbye to people that they love. And that apparently from all from everything that we can see, Lazarus is the only family these two sisters have left, the only close family that their livelihood depended upon him. That without him, without the head of the family, without someone to work the fields, and without somebody like him, that these two sisters would have been destitute. And so when their brother gets sick, it's not only the person that they love is, 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 is sick, it's the person upon whom these sisters very much depend. And, and what you see throughout this passage at three or four points is that Jesus loves them. Jesus loves them. We see that in verse 3. says, the sisters say, the Lord, he whom you love is ill. We see it in verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And it says in verse 36, see how he loved him. Jesus loves this family. Jesus loves this family. Perhaps he has an affection for them and he kind of keeps his ear to the ground and watches out for them in particular because um, scripture says that God is the father to the orphan and the husband to the widow. He cares for this family in the midst of their brokenness. And Jesus says this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So it seems like he, he, he wants to 
to step into this moment. It seems like he wants to provide life and, and healing, and he says that he loves them, and, and yet Jesus waits for two days. He waits for two days. Two days. It's, a, it's apparent that the, the messengers who, who come to him travel at least a day, maybe two days to get to him. And we know from John 5, Jesus can heal at a distance. He's not limited by geography. Or John 4, sorry. And Jesus waits for two days. He waits for, for two days. He, and he loves this family. He's looking out for this family. This family is in a lot of need. There's a lot of brokenness. And yet Jesus waits. It doesn't seem to make sense. And his disciples, of course, know all this. They know Jesus could heal from a distance. He's not, he's not limited. And so when Jesus says, let us go to Judea again, the disciples are understandably a little bit flabbergasted. Like, Jesus, why would you go there if you can heal him from here? And, you know, they were seeking to kill you. Do you want to die? After all, we just saw in the last chapter that they were seeking to arrest him and seeking to stone him. And Jesus has this habit of picking a fight with them. Jesus, do you, really want, do, do you really want to go there again? And then Jesus says this cryptic, these cryptic words in John in 11, verses 9 and 10. He says, Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. He's already called himself the light of the world, so they know he's talking about himself. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Jesus says, hey, I'm the light of the world, and wherever I am, if you're walking with me, you're not going to stumble. Even if I take you into a pit of vipers and to a lion's den and into the valley of the shadow of death, if you're walking with me, you have the light of the world, and you won't stumble. You won't trip. So he's explaining that wherever he is, that, that there's life there and there's light there. And then he says, after saying these things, he said to him, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. So I'm going to go wake Lazarus up. I'm going to go and, and, and wake him from his sleep. Of course, he's speaking metaphorically, and the disciples, as is typical, don't understand. He says, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. And Jesus obviously spoke of his death, and so finally he just explains plainly, Lazarus has died. It's not just that he's fallen asleep, and it's that he's dead. And then he said, notice what he doesn't say in verse 15. He doesn't say, I'm going to go and bring him back from the dead. I'm, I'm going to go and resurrect him. He is going to, we're going to see that. But he doesn't tell them what he's going to do. Why doesn't Jesus explain why they're going there? Why doesn't he tell them? I mean, it's evident to everyone this is a family with a bit of tragedy, a, a bit of a history, a bit of brokenness. And great need. It's a family that Jesus in particular cares about and loves, and has great affection for, someone who the disciples all know. And Lazarus is dead, and Jesus would be putting his life in danger to go. And yet he doesn't say, but I'm going to raise him from the dead. No, he says, and for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may what? So that you may believe. So that you may believe. See, what the disciples need in this moment is not to be told all the answers. 
What the disciples need in this moment is not to have all the dots connected, not to have everything make sense. What the disciples are told in this moment is, trust me. Trust me. And so often when we are going through suffering, what we want is answers. We say, why? And Jesus says, trust me. Believe in me. See, Jesus knows that every suffering of the life of his people is brought about for their good. And every pain and trial and tribulation that we go through as his people is so that the glory of God might be displayed. Listen, God lets us go through light and momentary pain. God lets us go through light and momentary pain so that we might have the weight of eternal glory. And as hard and as difficult as suffering is this side of the grave, it does not compare with the glory that is to be revealed in us. And for now, because we don't have categories to understand that, Jesus says, trust me. And I just love Thomas. Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us go that we may die with him. I just want to point this out. Thomas is a bit of an Eeyore. And Jesus doesn't feel the need to correct him. Jesus, Jesus knows this is just Thomas. And if he was to make him not cranky, he would change who he is. And so he just lets him be Thomas. He just tolerates that. Sometimes people need that in suffering too. That's the first conversation, Jesus and the disciples. Here's the second one with Martha, verses 17 down through 27. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I and the resurrection, and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus said to him, Yes, Lord. Or she said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. So Jesus comes to, Jesus comes to Bethany two days later, and it, it, it's been... Apparently four days since Lazarus died. Four days since Lazarus died. Four days since they had put him into the ground. And so the sisters are grieving, they're, they're weeping. It's actually after the climax of the, the funeral celebration. So in, in the first century Jewish culture, they, the, the funeral celebrations would climax on the third day after the funeral. On the third day after the death. Um, that would be when the the peak of the funerals. So this is kind of 
they're kind of starting to put their lives back together. They're starting to feel closure. They're starting to adjust to the reality of what life will look like without their brother. And they hear that Jesus has come. Of course, people have come from all over the, the, the area, we're told, especially from Jerusalem, to, and yet Jesus has come, and Martha and Mary leave all these others, well, Martha does, to, to come and see Jesus. It says, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Lord, if you would have been here, if you had come on time, if you hadn't waited, if you hadn't delayed, if you hadn't tarried, if you had hastened to come to my need, God would have answered your prayer. And my brother would have lived. Lord, if you would have been with me, if you wouldn't have abandoned me, if you, my brother would not have died. And in verse 22, she says, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. There's no real indication that she understands that Jesus is about to raise him from the dead. And maybe there's a glimmer of hope here, but what, what's more likely is that she recognizes that Jesus has his reasons, whatever they are, and she recognizes that Jesus and the Father have this relationship, this intimacy, this closeness, this nearness. And so Jesus re- replies to her, your brother will rise again. Your brother will, will rise again, that he will live. And, and Martha responds, he, I, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. I know that theological truth. I know that it's true. I, I've read the Old Testament. I've read Isaiah 25, and I've read Job. And I, I know that God is the God of life and, and not of death. And I know that, that God promises that he, he, he can overcome. the. I, I know all this, I, I, and I know, I have a, a hope that my brother will rise on the last day. And notice what Jesus says in verse 25. Because again, Jesus does not tell Martha that he's, what he's about to do. It's very clear later in the chapter that Martha is surprised about what Jesus does. Um, so Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who, be- who lives and believes in me shall never die. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, it's not just that Lazarus will rise on the last day. He says, I'm going to make sure it happens. I'm going to take ownership. I'm going to take responsibility. I promise you. He's making a personal promise. He's entering into covenant. He's saying, I, you can take this to the bank. I will make sure he will rise again. I will make sure that he will live again. I will make sure that that he will stand in the land of the living. He says, and I do that for everyone who believes in me, everyone who's put their faith in me, everyone who's trusted in me, everyone who's bowed the knee and asked me to be their Lord and Savior. I enter into those places. I, I am for those people, not against those people, and I will fulfill the promise that has been spoken. And he says, do you believe this? And she says to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the, the anointed one, the one who God has chosen for this moment, the Son of God who's coming into the world. Yes, Lord, I, I believe. Yes, Lord, I have faith. I don't understand everything, but I, I trust and I believe. Now, Jesus, in this 
section nowhere indicates what he's about to do in a couple of moments. No, nowhere does Jesus explain what he's about to do. Uh, but what Jesus is interested in doing is he's interested in giving Martha hope. He's interested in, in, in giving Martha hope. And in that moment, what Martha needs to know is not the facts of how this is all going to work out and turn out in a minute. What Martha needs is hope. And what Martha needs is to know not just correct theology, not just the correct facts, not just the correct data, but what she needs to know is that Jesus is for her. What she needs to know is not just that Jesus will raise people on the last day, but that Jesus will raise her and her brother and all who have faith in him. That Jesus will fulfill his promises, that Jesus will not neglect to keep his word, that Jesus really will keep his promises. Martha doesn't need to know how all the dots connect and how everything works out. Martha needs to know that she can have hope. She needs to know not 100% correct facts, but rather how the big truth that Jesus is the resurrection and the life matters for her. That's the second conversation. Here's the third with, with Mary. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she, she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled, and he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? So once Martha is, is received this hope from Jesus, she goes and she tells her sister Mary in private, the teacher. So we're expecting Jesus is going to say some things. He's going to teach her some truths that will, um, that will enlighten her in this moment. The teacher is here, and he's calling for you. He wants to talk to you. He has something to tell you. He has something that will help you make sense of this. And so she hears it, and she rises quickly, and she goes to him. And the, the, Jesus is still outside of the town, perhaps close to the grave. And when the Jews who are with her in the house, they, they see that Mary rises quickly. They think she's going out to the tomb to say goodbye. She, they, they think she's going out to... to to, to say some last words to her brother. And so they follow her. They want to be there for her. They want to be known as being there for her. And they follow her. And to their surprise, Mary comes not to the tomb, but to Jesus. And she falls at his feet. This is almost certainly not an act of anything other than great emotion, great grief, great weariness of soul, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Same thing that Martha said, same words, and yet different personalities, different characters, different 
the, the way that it is, it, the emotion comes across a lot more strong here. And she doesn't have to say anything else. And Jesus sees her weeping, and he sees the Jews who are with her also weeping. And he himself is deeply moved in his spirit. He's troubled like the, like the sea that churns and, and waves blow, and the frost comes to the surface of the waves, and rain and lightning. That's, that's what's going on in Jesus' spirit, and he's greatly tr- troubled. And he asked, where, where have you laid him? Where did you put Lazarus? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Notice what Jesus doesn't say to Mary. Jesus doesn't offer her platitudes. Jesus doesn't tell her that she needs to just chin up. Jesus doesn't even say to her what he said to Martha or what he said to the disciples. He actually doesn't say anything. He just says, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. He thought about that profound truth, how Jesus enters into our human flesh, and he enters into the full human experience, and he has a full human nature just like you and I. And when his friends die, he weeps, because that's what you do when someone that you love has passed. He knows what he's about to do in a couple minutes. He knows it's not like he's it's not like that's going to be like a spontaneous idea. Jesus clearly has a plan. Yet Jesus enters into this moment and he weeps. He knows that what Mary needs in this moment is not platitudes. It's it's not to have all the dots connected. It's not for everything to suddenly make sense. What Mary needs is a shoulder to cry on. She needs someone who not only will rejoice with her when she's rejoicing, but weep with her when she's weeping. And so Jesus wept. And notice here, he really doesn't seem to care at all what the Jews think about this. The Jews are saying, well, probably some of the same Jews who had picked up stones to stone him in the temple. Some of them say, see how he loved him, and others are, are, are doubting him, and others are using this as an opportunity to further their doubt. And Jesus is here for his sheep. He's not, he does, he's, he's not of a ton of concern to him what the Jews think. He's here for Mary and Martha and Lazarus and his disciples. Fourth conversation is, of course, with Lazarus. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. So Jesus is deeply moved and he comes with them to the tomb. And it's a cave. It's probably a family tomb. One of the ways that we know this is a family that's well known. It's a, it's a family tomb probably hewn into stone outside the village. This was normal for families of some repute. This is probably where Lazarus and Mary and Martha's ancestors, maybe their parents were buried. 
And he comes to the tomb and says, take away the stone. And so Martha, the sister of the dead man, says, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. Or in the King James, King, old King James says, Lord, he stinketh. <laughs> True story. For he has been dead four days. Now, the, the kind of a folk Jewish belief was that if somebody had been dead for, for one day or two days or three days, there was still hope, like the spirit was still hovering over their body and might come back. But after, on the fourth day, the spirit finally leaves the body and goes. And so he's, he's, he's been dead for four days. There's no hope. We've already said goodbye. The body is already stinking. It, it, it's very, and this is in, in line with um, Martha's practicality. She's a very practical person, both in this and in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, she's saying he's dead. He's all the way dead. He's not, he's not mostly dead. He's all dead. And if he's all dead, there's only one thing you can do. For those of you who know that movie. <laughs> he's, he's dead. We've already said goodbye. And Jesus looks at her, and I just, uh, this is not in the text, it's just my imagining. I imagine Jesus looks at her with a glimmer in his eye. Did I not? tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God so they moved away the stone they rolled away the stone and Jesus lifts up his eyes and he prays he says father I thank you that you've heard me I knew that you always hear me but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me Jesus says you and I father we have this communion that goes back to eternity past and extends for eternity future but I'm, I'm saying this now in this moment so that the people who are here watching this unfold will know that you have sent me. And when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. He called out into the grave. He stood at death's door and he cried out, come out. See, the word of God doesn't just ask for life, it creates life. It affects life. It results in life. It causes life. So when the Son of God stands at the, death, at the de- door of death and says, come out, the dead come out. They do not have an option not to come out when the Lord of all reality beckons to them, when he calls to them. La- Jesus does not stand at the grave of Lazarus and give a great eulogy. He does not stand at the grave of Lazarus and spit platitudes. He doesn't stand at the grave of Lazarus and use this for his ulterior means. He stands at the grave of Lazarus and says, Lazarus, come out. Come out of the grave. And when the Son of God, the Son of the I Am, the living God says, come out, the dead come. Maybe you're here this morning, you are stuck in your sins and you are, and you are mired in guilt and in shame. Maybe you hear God himself beckoning to you, come out. Come out of that sin, come out of that death, come into the land of the living. You hear the word of God himself saying, come and find forgiveness, come and find healing, come and find freedom. And I would advise you if you are dead to come when the Lord of life calls you. The man who had died came out. 
his hands. And notice he's not the man who was dead. He's the man who formerly had died. His hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. Jesus says to Lazarus, the only thing that he needs, the only thing that he has to say, which is come out. Four conversations. Three, three ironies. Three ironies at the, in the last little bit of this. Verses, starting in verse 45, it says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for all the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to, the, to gather into one the children of God who had scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Three ironic things about this description. In coming to give Lazarus life, Jesus is signing his own death warrant. This event is the final straw for the Jews in Jerusalem. That they, they know that they have no option after this. They know that after this, Jesus must be put to death. Jesus himself went to Bethany knowing this was going to happen. It's not confusing to him. It's not a mystery to him. It's not something he doesn't realize. Jesus comes to Bethany knowing that in, by giving Lazarus life, he will die. Here's a second irony. Caiaphas is more right than he knows. Caiaphas is more right than he knows. This is very clear in 51. It says, He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied. And this, this is an idea that actually is in Jewish literature of the time that there's kind of these unknowing, ignorant prophecies that happen. And so John here is speaking the, the language of the first century. He, he ironically prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into, the, into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. The prophecy that Caiaphas makes unknowingly is that Jesus will die for his people. And John takes this as an opportunity to teach us that Jesus does indeed die on behalf of his people. He dies in their place for their sins, taking their punishment upon himself. His death is substitutionary. His death is particular. He, die, he dies to gather the children of God into one. He dies for the people of God. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, and his death is effectual. His death accomplishes something. His death brings together a people who are scattered and brings them into one. His death affects their life. His death creates the church. His death is for the people of God. Caiaphas is more right than he knows. But here's the, here's the third irony of, of this little section here. They conspire to put Jesus to death. 
But Jesus has just demonstrated that he has power over death and that death will not stop him. So they can crucify him. They can stone him. They can put an anchor around him and put him in the sea, but they will not stop him. They can do whatever they want to him, but the Lord of life will not be hindered by the grave. Two two paradigms, two facts, two realities about this chapter. One, it ought to be clear this is a deeply theological chapter. It's a chapter that that points forward to the work of Christ on the, in the death and the empty grave, that you see parallels here between uh, and teaching here, that it pushes us forward towards the end of the gospel. This is the climax of the first half of the gospel of John and the death and resurrection of Christ, which is even greater, is the climax of the second half. This is a, a deeply theological chapter. That's the first reality. Here's the second one. It's also deeply historical. It's deeply historical. Uh, you see marks throughout this chapter that this is based on eyewitness testimony. You remember that, Lord, he stinketh? Yeah, that, that is a mark of an eyewitness testimony. If you're creating a legend, you don't think to add details like that. It has details that only make sense in light of the first century. It has details such as the family tomb outside the village, such as the place of Bethany, two miles outside of Jerusalem. It has details that we know to be true, that a decomposing body stinks. It's a part of the plot. There's not a lot of ancient legends that are based on stinking bodies. It's historically true. It's, it's also the kind of story that you would never make up if you were making a legend about Jesus. I mean, what person who's trying to invent a story about Jesus is going to invent a story about Jesus where he comes out and gets accosted by two, uh, by two older women and not respond in the first century? Those are details. There's no way to make sense of this except to say that it's deeply historical. It only makes sense if it actually happened. That this could not be a figment of somebody's imagination. Too many people would have known about it. It was it's the news of it spread so widely. We'll find out later in the Gospel of John. The, the Pharisees feel like they have to plot to put Lazarus to death just to kill the story. This is a deeply historical This is a deeply historical story. Deeply theological and deeply historical, and that is where Jesus meets us. Yes, he's fully God, and yes, he's fully human. Yes, all the things that we say of God are true of him, and yet he entered into our existence and lived among us, which leads me to my last point, that there's one Savior. One Savior, one shepherd. Uh, This week I encourage some of you to read through the first half of the Gospel of John and to, to reflect on the ways that this ties those loose ends together. How it ties together the, 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 what Jesus told the disciples when he first met them, that they would see even greater things than these. How it ties together how Jesus cleans out the temple, uh, the temple and he talks about the temple as the, 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 he talks about the body as the temple of God. How it ties together this idea that Jesus brings living water and he has the bread of life. How in John 5 it tells us that Jesus is the one who has the right to give life to the dead. How it ties together all the other healings. This is far greater than any of the other miracles that Jesus has done up until now. This is a deeply uh, historical and theological story that tells the story of one Savior. And in particular, it carries on all the motifs that we saw last week 
and the week before of the good shepherd. How Jesus is a good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. Who Jesus, how Jesus is a good shepherd who will lay down his life and who will take it back up again. How Jesus is a good shepherd who will not allow any of those whom the Father has given him to perish. This is a story that tells the, this is a story that communicates not only the, a theological and historical reality, but it communicates to us and it gives us a picture of what we mean when we say Jesus is the good shepherd. How he comes and he cares for each one of his sheep in a particular way and he knows each one of them like he told us. And the sheep hear his voice and they respond, they come out of the grave. There's one shepherd, one savior. What Jesus does when he comes to death's doors, he calls to his own to come out. And when they hear the Lord of life beckoning them, they respond with faith. Let me give you nine-ish applications. Nine-ish. This first one might seem trite, but I promise you it's not. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. Did you notice how how it goes to great pains in the story to tell us that Jesus loves Lazarus and Martha and Mary. He knows about them. He knows their needs. He knows their brokenness. He knows how many hairs are on their head, how many tears they've shed. Jesus knows them and he loves them and he cares for them. It is a borderline arrogant thing to say that Jesus might love them, but he could never love me. Christian, if Jesus cares for Lazarus and Martha and Mary this way, what makes you think he doesn't care for you? Jesus loves me. Number two, Jesus meets us where we're at. Jesus meets us where we're at. This is one of the things that we talked about in our small group a couple weeks ago, got to give credit where credit is due. Um, notice how Jesus, notice how Jesus interacts with each one of the disciples in a different way. So he lets Thomas be an Eeyore. And he reasons with Martha, and he knows Martha's practical and, and, and thoughtful. And with Mary, he, he meets her he meets her in her emotion. He doesn't try to change these things. He even meets Lazarus in his odor. Jesus meets us where we're at. Christian, you do not have to try to scrub yourself clean before you come before the Lord. You don't have to pretend like you're, like you're better than you are. It's not like he doesn't know where you're at anyways. Jesus meets us where we're at. We sing a song here that, says, um, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And how often we sing those words and how often we still are trying to bring things in our hand. Jesus meets us where we're at. He's not waiting for us to prove ourselves. He's not waiting for us to show, show him how good we are. He's not waiting to, till we can measure up. He's not waiting until we compare okay and we meet the average level of disciples. He meets us where we're at in our misunderstandings and in our ignorances and in our brokenness and in our tragedy and in our sin and in our laziness and in our sleepiness. And he meets us where we're at. 
He doesn't wait till we have our act together, but he meets us where we're at. Number three, Jesus stands at the grave and he calls to us. He stands at the grave and he calls to us. He, he calls to each one of us by name at the grave and says, come out. He, he calls to each one of us and says, come from death to life. You know, we often hear stories of great conversions, like the Apostle Paul just getting knocked off the donkey by an angel, by the Lord himself. And we don't realize that Jesus has done the same thing for each one of us. Scripture says that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And Jesus has stood at the grave and he's called you. Maybe you're here this morning and you feel him calling, you feel him beckoning, you've never responded to that call in faith, you've never put your faith in Christ, and I would say, this is as good a day as any, to cry out to him in your heart and say, Jesus, take all of me because I want all of you. Take all of my sin, take all of my regret, take all of my shame, take all my brokenness, and give me yourself. Just let me come into your presence. Jesus stands at the grave and calls. Number four. The, the picture of Lazarus coming out of the grave gives us a paradigm for what it looks like to live as a Christian. So I, I, if I could say this, live like Lazarus. So when Jesus calls, we come out, and, and Lazarus is no longer marked by his death now marked as the one who's risen again. And yet he still has the burial cloths all wrapped around him. Jesus says, take those burial cloths off. Christian, that's a picture of the Christian life. Jesus calls us out of the grave and he says, come to life, and he puts a new beating heart into our chest, and he says, take those burial cloths off. Say, this one has a great memory. Nope, take it off. But this one is a lot, a lot of fun. Nope, take it off. Christian, this is a picture for you and I of what it means to live as a Christian. We're already made alive, and yet it takes a long time to take those burial cloths off. To be clothed in immortality and life. And Jesus walks with us every step of the way. Number five. The death of Jesus gathers us into one people. The death of Jesus gathers us into one people. Do you notice that? That when, it, when Caiaphas is talking and he, he, says, that, he says that the, the, Jesus would die not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God. You notice how John is, throughout the Gospel of John, and I've tried to show you as we've been going, showing how it's impossible to be a sheep and not be part of the flock. John just keeps again and again and again hitting us over the head with this reality that the Christian life is life together. The Christian life takes place in community. It's, you can't be a sheep if you're not part of the flock. And the death of Jesus pushes us into community with one another. The death of Jesus brings us together into one family so that we could be known as his children. So we would no longer be scattered so we'd no longer run off the cliffs, and so we'd no longer injure ourselves on the slopes. The death of Jesus gathers us together into one people. Number four, n- number six, sorry. 
Jesus is our model and how to care for who people are. In other words, Jesus is our model and how to care for who people are. Notice how Jesus interacts with each of these people in a way that it's just fitting for them. He, he lets Thomas be himself. He knows Martha is a little bit more thoughtful and a little bit more maybe introverted, and she thinks things through, and Jesus is willing to talk with her and meet her where she's at and have the conversation and talk theology with her. With Mary, he's willing just to be with her, to weep when she weeps and to rejoice when she rejoices. But Jesus interacts with each of these people for who they are. He doesn't try to change them. All of us have character features and character personalities that that lead us to respond certain ways in tragedy. And Jesus is not interested in changing those features of our personality. He meets us where we're at, and, and therefore we ought to do the same. We ought to go and do likewise. We ought not to expect everyone to respond the same when they're in the middle of something. We ought to care for who other people are in the same way that he's cared for us. I'll say number seven, he cares for where people are. I'd venture to say that Jesus, in all of his interactions with Mary outside of this story, actually does talk to her and actually does teach her. What Jesus has is timing. Jesus knows now is not the time to rebuke her. Jesus knows that now is not the time to to tell her what she's doing wrong. There, there will come a time where Jesus can correct her theology. There will come a time where Jesus can teach her. But in this moment, in the thick of it, Jesus is willing to, to let her say her peace, to let her grieve. Jesus is big enough that he can receive that. And so often you and I, we are like Job's friends. We go and we sit with people in the dirt, in the dust, in the ashes. And after a few days, we kind of get bored. And we start to tell them what they're doing wrong. And listen, there's a time and a place. I got brothers. There's a time and a place. But Jesus has timing. He knows when to rebuke, when to correct, and when just to grieve. So Jesus ought to be our model as we care for not only who people are, but where people are. All right? Number eight, there is no suffering. There is no suffering which does not lead to the glory of God. There is no suffering which does not lead to the glory of God. When we are going through the thick of it, and we're in the storm, and we're being tossed here and there, and, and our, we just can't see the sun, it's a perfectly normal, perfectly rational, regular thing to say, why did this happen? And... There's, we don't always get the specifics. Well, it happened so that this particular thing would happen, so this would happen, so this. We don't, we don't always get the specifics. But what we do know is that Jesus allows us to go through light and momentary pains so that we can see eternal glory. So I, we, I, oftentimes when people ask me, why is this happening? Don't, I don't have the answer. I don't know why this is happening. I can make some guesses, but what we do need to know is that Jesus cares so much about us he loves us so much, that he, and he wants us to see his eternal glory so brightly, so strongly, so vividly. He's willing to allow us to suffer just a little bit. He's willing to allow us just to suffer just a little bit. 
to put up with it just a little bit, just so we can see glory. Number nine. This passage teaches very clearly that there is a day that is coming. There is a day that is coming where Jesus will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Where he will give rise to the dead. Where he will consume the veil that is cast over all people. Where you and I, though we're eaten and wasted away, will see in our flesh our Redeemer. This passage teaches that our Redeemer does live. And that he will, in the words of Tolkien, make everything that is sad come untrue. Yes, we do say when we put people in the ground, dust to dust and ashes to ashes and earth to earth. But we say it in the sure and certain hope of the resurrection of the dead. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God of life. God who gives life, God who calls us out of the grave, a God who says to us, take off the funeral cloth. We thank you that you are a God who gathers us into one, a God who goes and seeks and saves the lost, a God who does not allow your sheep to perish, a God who sends his son to give up his life for the sake of the sheep. Father, we believe that you are standing at the door and calling to us now to come out of our sin, to come out of our shame, to come out of our brokenness. Father, that we had ears to hear and a heart to leap and love to respond and faith to believe. It's in the name of your Son that we pray. Amen.